It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And you can now listen on the iHeartRadio app. And uh, it's also a pleasure to welcome those listeners on other radio stations that now carry Moment of Truth. Always a pleasure to welcome you as well. And... It is also a pleasure to welcome to the show, and, and, and to some degree welcome back to the show, uh, some guests. I certainly feel like I know at least a couple of them, because I've been emailing them back and forth for some time now, but uh, Dr. Hannah Harrison was on the show previously. That created the opportunity for us to talk about other things, and I think part of that was because when I saw Hannah's setup online, she had this great microphone, she looked great online, and I went, wow, and then she told me about this thing that they have going on called Coastal Roots Radio, and I went, really? So I said, that sounds like something we should have you guys back on the show to talk about. And of course, today we now have with us not only uh, Dr. Hannah Harrison, we have Phil Loring as well as Emily DeSosa back on the show to talk about Coastal Roots, Coastal Roots Radio, and all the things that they have in association with that, which kind of sprang up through COVID-19. So it's a great pleasure to welcome Phil Loring. Hannah Harrison and Emily De Sosa to the show. Welcome, you guys. Thanks so much for having us, David. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So, as I said, you know, when I spoke with Hannah and she told me about this Coastal Roots Radio, I wanted to know more. I thought it was really interesting because you guys are associated with the University of Guelph. Would someone like to just tell me a little bit more about that and how it all got started? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to um, give you some of that background, and thanks for having us on, David. I mm-hmm. really appreciate it. Coastal Roots as a project sort of sprung from my own desire. I, I've been working in coastal communities as a researcher for a number of years, as have has, has Hannah. Um, and I put together, when I first came to the University of Guelph, I put together the Coastal Roots program. Uh, it's primarily funded. It's a grant funded by the federal government, uh, as well as at, by the Errol Food Institute at the university. And I started Coastal Roots to create a way for people in coastal communities to connect, to share the stories of what they were working on, the challenges they're facing, and to learn from one another. Hmm. And we were very happy that it was successful. And, and you know, the goal was really storytelling. Uh, whatever media it would take, whether it was photography, film, hmm. podcasts, we knew we were going to do a podcast and mm-hmm. we knew that Coastal Roots Radio was going to be a centerpiece. Uh, but really, the, the original mission was to create a meeting place. Uh, a place for telling and sharing stories and connecting people. And then Coastal Roots Radio, as I said, we knew we wanted to do a podcast. We had on the team this interest, and we really appreciate the the podcasting as a way to tell stories, but we didn't know what the story we wanted to tell was right away. Uh, and then COVID hit, uh, and then we started to see the, the myriad impacts on fisheries, small-scale mm. fisheries in mm. particular, of the pandemic, and the light bulb sort of went on, and we realized this is the story that we need to tell. This is how we start. Coastal Roots Radio. Hmm. Neat. And, and Phil, you are the uh, principal investigator of Coastal Roots. And as you mentioned, Ariel, you're the aerial chair in food, in food policy and society at the University of Guelph. Now, before we get to Emily, and, I, and I'll introduce her in a sec, uh, I just would like to go back to say, once you had this, this seed and you, you wa- knew you wanted to start this program, uh, Coastal Roots and Coastal Roots Radio, uh, how did you put the team together? How did that come and how did that develop? Well, 
a lot of it was, um, you know, just sort of the good graces of timing. Mm. Um, I had worked uh, many years ago. I worked with Hannah Harrison uh, at the University of Alaska. On uh, We collaborated on research mm. on fisheries there. Right. Uh, and then I moved on to a faculty position in Canada, and she moved on to get her PhD at mm. the University of Norway. Okay. Uh, and the timing was just right. When I, when I was making the move to University of Guelph in, in 2018, and I knew I was going to start this project, I, uh, it was right about the time that Hannah was finishing her mm. dissertation and mm. was freeing up to work on something new. Uh, and I knew that we both wanted to work on you know, similar things, similar kinds of research. And so you know, the pieces just fit. Okay, great. So that's them. Now, Emily is, is also part of the team. And I noticed there's quite a few other people also involved with, with this. But Emily, I understand you like to uh, make lemonade out of lemons. <laughs> yeah, this, uh, this podcast has definitely been um, a, bright so- a bright spot for me over the last year and having the opportunity to work on this. I, uh, I was a new master's student at the start of 2019, and um, Hannah and I had the opportunity to go to Portland to the local catch summit in October, where, uh, and that's where we met a lot of the folks that we speak to on the podcast. And I think that was really my introduction to, uh, to community-supported fisheries and alternative seafood networks, and just this whole world of fishing and seafood that Phil and Hannah are far more uh, familiar with than I am. I don't come from that background, but mm-hmm. I was interested in it for my for my masters, and it, it was, I was definitely, I will say, thrown into the deep end with this podcast. Um, but it's been a, a really rewarding learning experience for me. When you say you were thrown into the deep end, uh, what do you mean by that? From the technological end, or from f- what, what kind of aspects are you referring to? Yeah, so I don't have any prior to to this podcast. I didn't have any experience with podcasting uh, specifically. I have interest in in other forms of science communication and you know writing blog posts and using social media mm. and and things like that. But I'd never uh, experimented with this this podcasting method. And yeah, one day I think like like Phil said, you know, COVID happened and we kind of realized that this was an opportunity. Or I should say, Phil and Hannah <laughs> realized this was an opportunity and and called me up one day and said, you know, like we want to do this project and do you want to be part of it? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I'm like super interested. And um, yeah, we were kind of flying by the seat of our pants as things were happening, like trying to, like, like you said, from the technology standpoint for Mm. myself, trying to figure out how these mics work Mm. and how to get uh, the proper audio set up and, and tinkering with zoom and whatnot. Um, And then, yeah, just kind of figuring it out as we go in terms of like who we were speaking to and building a story and and tracking the changes. You, you turned this show to some degree uh, with, by writing an academic paper and and then making those presentations um, uh, to a number of conferences. Yeah, it's been a really great like launching pad, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, from a student perspective, it's like you said, it's been a really great thing to present at conferences, especially, um, you know, this podcast started fairly early on in my master's. And so I didn't really have much like data to present in like the traditional sense of presenting research at an academic conference, but we had a lot of data from this podcast and a lot of interesting findings um, to present from, from here. And so it was a, it was a unique way to sort of get into the the academic conference scene early, even though I didn't have, you know, a lot of my thesis uh, done at that point. Um, And just, be able to share the results from the podcast and yeah, use it as a launching pad to get myself out there at conferences to, to network. Um, and yeah, it, it's a nice thing to kind of be able to describe myself as now, you know, I, I am a master's student and now I'm also um, a podcast host, which is nice to be able to say. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I guess you nece- wouldn't necessarily have put those two things together uh, before COVID perhaps, right? <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> um, okay. Thank you for that. 
Now, as I mentioned, you're all associated with the University of Guelph. Can you each describe a little bit about your your work that you do there? Phil, Phil, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. So, as you said, David, I hold the Errol Chair in Food Policy and Society at the University of Guelph. I'm, I'm an anthropologist by training, and uh, most of my research looks at community food systems and food security and environmental change and sustainability. Uh, over the years, I've worked in a number of different parts of the world on those issues, by and large, uh, you know, the vast majority has been in coastal communities, fishing communities, but I've also worked uh, in the prairies with farmers and ranchers dealing with issues of water and wetlands and conflict. Uh, and so, you know, so I'm a, I'm a faculty member. I'm an associate professor. I teach. I do research. I, I have a, I've been building a lab of really wonderful people that I work with, which includes Dr. Harrison and Emily um, and it's it's a, it's a really really wonderful place to do this work. I mean, even though we're not coastal per se by many people's definitions, of course we are right close. We are right by the Great Lakes, which mm. have really important fisheries and lots mm-hmm. of coastline, and are really important culturally and economically to Canada. So perhaps you could think of them as, and often we talk, call them Canada's fourth coast. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's um, that's what I do here. It's, it's mm. a bit of a mix of research and teaching. But your comment about not necessarily on the coast, your, all of you, uh, your work takes you to the coast. I guess that's the, that's the point there, right? Yes, and, and by design. Um, I, I feel more human when I'm by the coast, or at least when I get to see it once or twice a year. Uh, love, I think, and this is true for all of us, love being on the water, love working with people in, in coastal settings on fishing boats and so mm. forth. Maybe that's why I was interested in having you guys on the show. I feel the same way. Hannah, tell me a little bit about uh, your work, please. Sure. So uh, I, my work really focuses um, on the Coastal Roots project itself. I'm the science director for this project. Um, but to slightly to the side of that, though closely related, I also am interested in the human dimensions of fisheries, um, particularly commercial fisheries, and also the way that we conserve or enhance or try to restore fisheries, um, usually through stocking and through hatchery programs. So my past research, my PhD really focused on the hatchery end of things. Um, and as Phil had mentioned earlier, we used to, to work in Alaska on Alaskan fisheries. And I do still uh, kind of retain some, some research in that area in the Gulf of Alaska today. And the, the work that we're really interested in now is, is trying to link together all of the ways that people are working on the Great Lakes and intersecting with fisheries. Um, and as I, as I mentioned, particularly in a commercial aspect, because the Great Lakes truly are a pretty phenomenal commercial fishery and really, I think, underappreciated and not very visible in, in Ontario, even though um, it is one of the largest in the world. So that's, that's kind of the focus of what we're doing these days. Mm. Um, and I... Well, maybe I'll leave it there and I'll, I'll let Emily take over. Okay. Just before we go to Emily, I'd just like to ask you a follow-up question because you, I think it ties in with that. And that is, what kind of what kind of shape are the Great Lakes in these days? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I think people have some really mixed and sometimes a little bit outdated views of where mm-hmm. the lakes are at. So the Great Lakes, I think, as many people know, have undergone some pretty radical change uh, since European contact in this area in the Great Lakes Basin. And the, they've really gone through transitions of being very bountiful um, in terms of fisheries species and species diversity to being extremely polluted, to being overrun by invasive species. I think most people mm-hmm. are familiar with the different species of mussels that mm-hmm. have really had an impact on the lakes, as well as other fish. Um, people who have lived around the lakes for a while might remember when there were huge uh, swarms or schools of alewife that died and that would pile up on the beaches of major cities. 
Um, but today the lakes look really different and they've really, really benefited from a lot of strong regulatory uh, framework that has that has essentially disallowed the kind of rampant pollution that we used to see earlier in the 20th century. Um, and there's a lot of uh a kind of new balance being struck. Um, we do still see a lot of native fish species on the decline and that they're really struggling with non-native species that have been introduced um, through the seaway and through ballast water, um, through through large ships that pass through the lakes. Um, but by and large, the fish in the lakes that are uh, popular for human consumption are safe to eat in moderation. Um, and, and Health Ontario and Health Canada makes recommendations about that that you can find online. Um, and the, the fisheries are still quite robust. And there's quite a number of uh, small scale fishers who are often family based and who have done the, the, these fishing activities for multiple generations um, in all of the lakes uh, right now. And including that includes a lot of First Nation fisheries that mm. are, are actively engaged not only in commercial harvest, but also caring for fish in ways that support their cultural and their food security. Um, and their well-being uh, within their their First Nation or within their traditional territories. So quite a diversity of ways that the lakes are being used and that people have these relationships with fish, um, often mostly through the diet, but certainly in other ways as well. And that the lakes in general have really become um, better than I think what a lot of people remember. I think you actually work with some First Nations, don't you? Yeah. So our, our team here in the, the in the Coastal Roots Project and also in Phil's lab, the Conservation of Change lab, um, have some really wonderful relationships with several First Nations along Lake Huron and Georgian Bay and get to explore those, those traditional ways of doing fish cultivation and, and blending together Indigenous knowledge with um, kind of Western technologies, especially within hatchery settings. Mm. Uh, nice. You know, the other thing that comes to mind is mercury. We hear a lot about fish absorbing mercury. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think one of the things that people kind of forget when it comes to fisheries is that fish, by and large, especially from the Great Lakes, are a wild food. And we really don't, as, a, as humans, we really don't eat many other wild foods unless we are living in places or come from traditions and cultures where wild foods are still a big part of the diet. So there are other species that also uh, go through this process of what's called bioaccumulation, where um, mercury or other heavy metals or toxins can be in the sediment or can be in the water, and it's consumed by zooplankton or other um, small animals. Mm. And those small animals then get big, eat, eaten by a mm. larger animal, and so on and so on. So you have things like orca whales that then have a much higher concentration because they've eaten so many little bits of that toxin within all of their prey species. And in the fish in the Great Lakes, fortunately, most of the fish that we are eating, so say a walleye or a pickerel or a yellow perch, they're only a few years old when they're harvested to eat. That's kind of the, the perfect time to mm. eat them is just they're a few years old. So they really haven't had time to accumulate any of those toxins in their body. They're also not very fatty fish, and those toxins tend to accumulate in fat cells. So we, we don't see that being a big problem with those species. But if you look at something like a lake trout, they can uh, live to be much older, you know, 20 plus years. And so in that case, that fish has had a much longer time to accumulate those things and therefore becomes uh, by, you know, health code standards unsafe for most people to eat. So mm. um, we, we I, mean, I think there's strong advisories that you shouldn't eat some of those really big trophy fish that you see people pull out of the lakes. They're you know very impressive to look at, but they've just had too much time to accumulate those things. And so they be, their meat becomes unsafe. 
Um, and again, I would I would strongly recommend that people look at the official guidance on that and, and not just my opinion here. Um, but that's that's kind of how we end up with that problem and, and why some fish are safe and some aren't. Right. OK, well, thank you for that. Emily, back to you. I had asked both Phil and, and Hannah about, uh, you know, what they do at the university. Uh, you're still a student. What is it that you hope to uh, focus on, what you're focusing on now and, and what do you hope to do in the future? Yeah, so I guess broadly when I started my uh, my master's program, my interest um, and still is my interest is in seafood uh, for food security and the role of marine foods in uh, securing global food security and livelihoods in coastal communities. Um, and so that's what connected me with Phil and interested me in um, in his research program. And then I'm going to refer to the local catch summit again that we attended because I think that was really like the catalyst for a lot of the work that I've been working on throughout uh, throughout my master's program. Because um, obviously seafood for food security is a little bit of a broad topic, especially to tackle in a master's degree. Mm. And um, having the opportunity to attend the local catch summit and speaking with some of the fishermen and the community supported fishery operators there, I think really helped me to narrow my focus. Um, And so now my thesis is looking at a lot of these community supported fisheries and direct sales models uh, within the seafood industry in North America and sort of how um, basically I'm trying to understand why people pursue these models um, in, uh, in relation to or um, rather than participating in the quote-unquote tradi- traditional method of seafood distribution um, and what challenges they face in operating these models. And so it's been um, it's been really neat. I definitely, um, I actually like was totally new to the whole community-supported fishery world when I attended that summit, and I've learned a lot um, about the industry over the last couple of years. And yeah, so that's been my focus um, recently is the direct marketing models and alternative seafood networks in North America. Hmm. Do you remember what first interested you in this this sort of area of study? Yeah. Um, so I uh, I've always like loved the ocean. Um, I like Phil said like I love being on the water mm. um, and just you know being being near the ocean. Um, and so I've always had like a marine conservation um, interest or passion. And my family is actually from the Azores Islands off of Portugal. And so seafood has always been like a huge part of our of our culture and of my identity and just you know family gatherings and whatnot. Um, I've always been uh, interested in seafood. And yeah, I consider it really part of my identity. And so um, throughout my undergrad, I was also studying environmental issues and I learned a lot about um, different marine issues and different threats to the oceans. And I was kind of interested in this intersect of where marine conservation and seafood production met and basically trying to understand how we could continue to produce seafood because I, <laughs> I'm i not really interested in, in not eating seafood anymore. And I do believe there is a way to, to eat it sustainably mm. um, and to support coastal communities. And so I wanted to yeah explore the intersection of seafood production and marine conservation now you've done this show uh, coastal roots radio you've had many guests on over the past year you uh, looked at stories what what have you what have you learned what have you each learned from doing this series of shows that maybe you you were surprised to learn or you you didn't think that that would is what you you would find out about by doing this phil do you want to start sure happy to and well you know I think you know going into this because I've worked with with fisher folk for a long time I've it's always been clear to me how resilient and adaptable mm. they are in the face of change but I I do have to say I was really struck by um the way that 
small scale fishers responded rapidly and effectively uh, and sort of rallied around their values for small scale fishing and community to to keep food reaching people when they could when and and we have an, actually a new research paper that just released today about this but when when the global international seafood markets were locked up in the early months of the pandemic uh, and 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 things stopped moving because of trade blockages to china mm. and so forth uh, the way that you know local alternative seafood networks community supported fisheries for example they kept they kept finding ways to get people seafood uh, and and they mobilized with their values and and made sure they were doing it in a way that people could afford, given that people were maybe not working, mm. um, stuck at home, and 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 so, you know, as I said, I've I've always sort of understood in an academic sense the resilience in in these communities and the adaptability, but but seeing it unfold real time was was really uh, remarkable, awe inspiring, perhaps. Mm. It gave me a, a, an increased amount of respect for. Mm. Uh, for you know, it, these are not just people out on a boat trying to make a buck. They're mm. they're fishing for food. They're fishing mm. for community. Uh, they're fishing as a tradition, uh, and they're fishing in a way that they you know really keeps. They want to stay mindful about the the health of the resource, the sustainability of the mm. fishery, and also the sustainability from a social perspective of their families and their communities and and right. the the region. Right. Okay. H- Hannah. Sure. Yeah, it's such a good question. I think one of the things that struck me most in talking to guests, you know, we were able to feature guests from all over North America, as well as uh, the other parts of the world. And consistently, as Phil says, the the resilience of small scale fishers to kind of adapt on the fly was extremely remarkable to me, but perhaps even more so how similar the problems that they were facing were across all of these very kind of radically different places and Mm. different kinds of fisheries that people who are doing shellfish aquaculture and people who are lobster fishing and people who are salmon fishing in Alaska or tuna fishing, they are all experiencing really similar types of obstacles, particularly in the regulatory environment. And I think that that's pretty remarkable because it also suggests that we can do something about that in my mind, that we can uh, focus clear and as, and contextually flexible policy on these different fisheries and, and in the way that we manage them to help fishermen overcome uh, what we see as somewhat unnecessary red tape, unnecessary regulation, or I should say maybe overly arduous regulation is that, you know, obviously food safety is important. Mm. Sustainable fisheries are important. Right. Um, but that's, that was really surprising to me to just see how similar the stories were mm. almost to the T we would, we, as we were developing the podcast, we would read an, a newspaper article that would talk about some, some fishery in some specific place and the challenge they were facing. And then we would do all of our interviews for that week. And that's, same story would pop up hmm. in totally different places, almost hmm. verbatim in some places. And that was just amazing. It was mm. it was kind of living in the twilight zone of, <laughs> of, as Phil said, watching this unfold mm. in real life and being, right. wow, I can't believe how similar this is. Mm. Wow. Okay, thanks. Emily? Yeah, um, I, I guess to, to echo what Phil and Hannah have said, like, it was really surprising to hear just how quickly uh, people were able to respond and the creative ways in which they were adapting and remaining optimistic. I will say also throughout everything was really, um, was really uplifting for us. Um, And something that I found like particularly, I don't know if surprising is the right word, um, but I was really happy about was that, 
even as things were changing so rapidly um, and these small scale fishermen and, and CSF operators were, you know, like <laughs> just doing everything and scrambling, trying to respond and adapt to this crisis around us, that they still prioritized uh, these conversations with us and made made time to chat with us. And I think it was a real testament to, um, you know, their passion for storytelling as well, and that they were just as eager as we were to to get these stories out there and to share the good work that they were doing. And so I was I was really happy with with how people responded to the podcast and how easy it was to to get people, you know, again, despite how crazy the world was, especially in those first few months um, to come back and talk to us week after week um, and make the time to share their stories. Okay. Uh, and one last quick question that uh, just came to mind, and that is, all of you are involved with the university, as I pointed out, and you are all associated with the work that you love, that you are researching, that the kind of things that you're doing, and you're, you're gaining something from this, uh, from this series that you're involved with. What do you think that it is that you are giving back to the community? I could start. I mean, I, the reason that I wanted to start Coastal Roots to begin with was not to be a storyteller per se, but to help people tell stories that they thought were important and that they wanted other people to hear. And and so I really hope with with co- what we've done in this first season with Social Fishton saying and all the other things that we're producing through Coastal Roots, I hope that we're being successful as that, that we're creating an open and friendly community around that's enabling people in coastal communities to tell the stories that they think need to be heard uh, so that whether it's a policy solution or whether they need just to talk to somebody else with a little bit more expertise, Mm. you know, this is very much a community of practice in small scale fisheries is just one example. And the, you know, the ability to tell that story and to be heard and to get feedback and to find support from somebody with similar experiences can be very powerful. Mm. And so hopefully we're, we're facilitating that. Okay. Uh, does anyone, Hannah or Emily, either of you want to add anything to that? Sure. I'll, I'll say I strongly agree with what Phil has just said. Um, and, and I think that it's so important that that specific detail that we are trying to help other people tell their stories as opposed to tell the story for them. And that's so critical because all researchers, as I mentioned earlier, bring their own lens to their research. And so no matter how accurate I might try to be in telling someone else's story, uh, Ultimately, it is going to be filtered through the way I see the world. And so by giving people this platform in which to share their voice, you know, obviously we are still involved as the narrators of each episode Mm. um, and choosing which clips to play and, and how we shape that. But ultimately, it's the listener gets to hear the voice of the person who owns that story. And that's really, I think, such a unique way to be able to do scholarly work because often it's just all on paper and the the quality and the spirit of someone's voice is really lost when put into text. So that's, that's really what I hope that we've been able to do with this. Okay. Uh, Emily, is there anything you wanted to add? I don't know if I can say uh, anything better than that. I think okay. those summed up <laughs> yeah, our goals perfectly. Okay. Well, thank you all very much for taking the time to join me on the show and share stories about the Coastal Roots and Coastal Roots Radio. And I just want to add, you know, this was, uh, as I said, uh, a conversation that came up from talking with Hannah earlier. Well, I think there's another interview that's going to happen, and that ties in with Phil, because Phil, as we didn't mention, is also an author, and he has a book he sent me, and I've been reading, and I cannot wait to have Phil on the show to talk about that, finding our niche toward a restorative human ecology. And it's been fascinating so far, Phil. I want to thank you for sending it to me, and it's full of great information. Great. I look forward to it. 
Okay. Well, thank you all once again for taking the time to join me on the show and all the best in the future with everything you guys are doing. Thanks so much for having Thanks us, David. So you bet. Take care. Phil Loring, Dr. Hannah Harrison, and Emily DeSosa, and they were on the show talking about Coastal Roots and Coastal Roots Radio. That's this part of the show. Don't go away. We'll be back with more right here on Moment of Truth right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth, and it is a pleasure to have you all with us here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. Now, you just heard prior to this interview that we're now going to run for you, and an interview that I did with Andrew Lockheed, and that happened back in around uh, June of 2020, and it had to do with the fact that Andrew Lockheed started the hashtag Rename Dundas Street, and he came on the show to talk about the petition that he had going out, and it was just before Andrew was going to take that petition to city council, and they had an end date that they wanted to raise, you know, as many uh, signatures on the petition as possible, and he was just going to take it. So. We haven't spoken to each other since then, but certainly things have happened because Andrew did, in fact, go make that presentation. And uh, if you go online, you can see some of those results that have happened. And uh, I would like Andrew to uh, to now uh, sort of give us an update. But before he does that, Andrew Lahid is a Toronto-based artist who created, as I say, the petition hashtag rename Dundas Street but with us here today on the show also because this story has expanded to across the pond as they say to Great Britain and with us uh, today we have Sir Geoffrey Palmer who is a professor emeritus at the School of Life Sciences at Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh Scotland and a human rights activist and it's a pleasure to have them both on the show and and Sir Geoffrey is here because it's the story takes us over to Scotland and it's wonderful. In fact, uh, Andrew, I guess the story actually starts somewhat in Scotland, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely, David. I mean, it's uh, it's through um, uh, Sir Jeff's activism uh, around the Melville Monument in Edinburgh that uh, that the Dundas petition here in Toronto uh, exists at all. Um, you know, I had the opportunity to become aware of um, his work around that particular monument uh, through a BBC article. And it's what got me to thinking, since I knew that it was the same Dundas for whom Dundas Street was named in Toronto, um, that we should be having a similar discussion here in our city. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, while our Toronto process has begun, um, Edinburgh seems to have uh, come to a, a, a happy conclusion, and uh, I'll, uh, you know, I'll let Sir Jeff speak about that. But uh, yeah, very exciting news indeed. Yeah, uh, Andrew, tell us about what happened because, as I say, the last interview uh, took us right up to just before you were going to make that presentation to City Council. Sure. So it's been very exciting over the last uh, last while. Um, the petition was uh, um, moved forward uh, by city council and was taken into executive um, without getting too much into the less than exciting world of bureaucracy. <laughs> the city, uh, the city council, city staff have come up with a process 
by which um, we'll explore uh, renaming Dundas Street. Mm. And that process uh, was adopted by council. And we are currently in phase one of that process. Now, to just rewind a second, part of that process was coming up with four options um, for uh, how to deal with the Dundas Street name. The four options are to do nothing, um, to change the name of some city assets, but not the street, uh, to not change the street name, but put up interpretive signage about it, or to rename all municipal assets um, bearing the Dundas name, which is, of course, the option that the community here in Toronto is actively pursuing. Um, so we've entered phase one of the municipal um, uh, review process. And this phase one has been largely about kind of gathering and examining the historic evidence um, to, to support the claims in the petition and to support what is the, the um, uh, prevailing attitudes of historians uh, today on Henry Dundas's role in delaying the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. Mm -hmm. And it's this phase that makes kind of this Edinburgh story all the more important to what's happening in Toronto, um, because, of course, we've reached those conclusions in Edinburgh and uh, so, yeah, so that's the important bit. You know, uh, as I was doing a little bit of research on this, I thought it was interesting to find out that th not only are we, we looking in and examining uh, the history of, of, of Henry Dundas, but it also seems that this is educating people to some degree, not only about what he did, but just about history in general. It, it really is interesting. I think a lot of us are, are sort of uh, getting ourselves up to speed on, on the history of uh, Dundas Street. And, and other things in the city. Yeah, and I think that's actually one of the most exciting things that's come out of this municipal process mm. is not only are we engaging around the legacy of Henry Dundas and the, the kind of contemporary, um, you know, um, violence and trauma that uh, that, that name and, and street monument uh, memorial carry, um, but that... The petition has had the knock-on effect of um, the City of Toronto developing a comprehensive review for all street names, mm. monuments, and honorifics mm. uh, put forward. So not only are we going to be looking at Dundas Street, but we'll be looking at everything in our city. And this will have a major impact on how Toronto remembers moving forward. Mm. And I think that's one of the most exciting things to come out of the process. All right. Great. Thank you for that. So, Jeffrey, uh, you've been waiting patiently. Hello. Yes, welcome Hello. to the show. It's it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you for, for asking me. 
Well, you know, when, when Andrew told me about this and told me about the story that you had to add to this and, and how it tied in with the naming of Dundas Street in Toronto, I thought this was a wonderful uh, way for us to expand the story and, and fill out the history even more because it's directly related to this. Can you tell me uh, the backstory behind your efforts and what you were doing uh, to change the monument or get a plaque put up uh, in, in front of the, the monument uh, for Henry uh, Dundas in Edinburgh? Well, yes. Um, you know, I, I've been sort of reading up about Henry Dundas, um, you know, from about 2007. Mm. Mm. I, 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 the, the, he has a very large statue in the middle of Edinburgh. Right. Which is 150 feet tall. Yeah. And um, it's, it's, it's enormous. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people have discussed it in terms of, well, how did it get there? Nobody quite knew. <laughs> and when I looked at the plaque, the plaque, you know, although I knew he was involved in, in gradually ab- abolishing the slave trade, you know, what he did, m- most people have heard of William Wilberforce. Um, and, and and I used to say to them, but have you heard of Henry Dundas as well? Mm. And they say no. Mm. And my view was that how can you know about William Wilberforce and not know about Dundas? Because w- 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 when Wilberforce um, put forward a bill in 1792 that the slave trade, the British slave trade, should be abolished immediately. Dundas, quite cunningly, put forward an amendment to say it should be abolished gradually. Right. And he made an argument, you know, and the argument was, it's almost like, well, why do it now? We'll do it eventually. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that appealed to the politicians at, at the time. Right. So they voted for gradual abolition in 1792. And Dundas's actions, and his, I've just put up something on Twitter this morning about him colluding with the king's son. Hmm. Um, during that period, you know, and the king's son was the second uh, most powerful person in the House of Lords. The first was the king. Hmm. <laughs> and therefore, he made those sorts of uh, 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 alignments and, and, and his actions delayed the abolition of the slave trade for 15 years, mm. from 1792 to 1807. And during that period, I calculated, and, you know, you've seen a figure of 630,000 Africans being transported. Mm-hmm. Well, I calculated it on the basis that Britain transported about 40,000 slaves a year. And during that 15-year period, about 630,000 Africans were transported into slavery on mm. the basis of Dundas's one word, wow. gradual. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and during that period of 15 years, which a lot of historians have, have sort of skated over, because some of it is horrific, in that during that period, he had a, 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 a plan to breed the slaves mm. so that at the end of the 15-year period, you know, we'd have enough slaves. Mm. So you didn't need to trade anymore. Wow. Mm. 
he also had a strategy that there was, should be age limits, you know, because older slaves caused trouble mm. in terms of rebellion. So he was setting age limits. And, you know, he supported the slave owners, you mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. their legality, because the slaves were property legally. Right. And therefore, he was saying we cannot abolish it immediately because these slave owners will lose their business. Sure. And therefore, he not only put in the word gradual, he had all sorts of strategy, for example, to buy slaves to fight in the British army. <laughs> and then these slaves were re-enslaved. Mm. <laughs> so all these things he did, which is not known generally because the historians have ignored them or mm. made excuses um, for him. You know, they say it was the time, it was the economics or it was the French Revolution. Nothing of the sort. It was a business for Dundas. It made money and it got him... He, they made him a Viscount, mm -hmm. um, and he got good a good pension. So all these things we've put together, put it to Edinburgh Council, in terms of my view was slavery was not on his plaque for 200 years. And mm -hmm. my view was, with other people, was that we should change the narrative on that plaque and right. put on that he was involved in delaying the abolition of the slave trade and it is on the plaque. Yes. And in last week or two weeks ago, the council voted that the temporary plaque should be turned into a permanent plaque. Right. So that's where we are at the moment. But he was a very powerful character. He chose the governor's of the, the, the Caribbean, and mm. he also transported, effective the transportation of the Jamaica Maroons mm. to Nova Scotia. Mm. So, you know, in order to stop rebellions in, 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 in Jamaica. Right. So if you have a campaign about him, then you've got adequate evidence to show that he was not a very nice person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now, were you instrumental in getting this uh, petition or this idea moved forward to the Edinburgh City Council to, to have the plaque changed initially? Well, yeah, What we had a committee. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was like 2017. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a council committee. Okay. And it, it's a wonderful story because we have a committee to look at the narrative on the plaque. And a young man, um, Adam Ramsey, was on the committee and he put up his own plaque okay. on, the, on, <laughs> the, on the statue, which the council, somebody quickly removed it. Yes, I guess. <laughs> and, um, and they then set up a committee and I was asked to join that committee mm. to look at the narrative on the plaque. Okay. And uh, so there was myself and the young man, Adam Ramsey, and also we had a historian, Michael Fry, and also a descendant mm. of Henry Dundas, oh. the present Viscount. Wow. So he's the 10th Viscount, hmm. um, Melville, who is Dundas. Hmm. His title is called Melville. Right. So if you've got any Melvilles around, it's Dundas. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, a lot of people don't realize right. that Melville is also done that. Good to know. <laughs> That's his title. Um, and we have lots of Melville's, Mel, Melville Street in Edinburgh and mm. also done that street. Right. But anyway, um, we sat on that committee from 2017 until George Floyd's mm. unfortunate death. Yes. And the, the council, just before George Floyd's death, the council informed me that because we couldn't arrive, there was no consensus about a narrative, they are going to disband the committee. Mm. And, of course, I, myself and Ramsey were opposed right. by the Viscount, of course, <laughs> and Michael Fry, the historians, who they were pals. Mm. And therefore, they were making excuses for Dundas, which, um, you know, so it was 50-50 all the time and we couldn't get anywhere. So the council disbanded. Now, George Floyd's death, it's, it's, you know, that that has had such an impact. Yeah. Um, Because my view about George Floyd's death is that a Scottish philosopher called David Hume, in 1753, actually said that non-white people are inferior Mm. to white people. Mm. And he also then specified that Negroes are inferior to whites. Mm. Now, that concept, in terms of racism, that's the basis of it. Yes. And when George Floyd died, you know, I, I, I told people that it is that statement that killed him. Mm. from 1753. Hmm. And a lot of historians have taken it upon themselves to defend people like Hume and people like Dundas. Mm. They feel that they're doing the public, whether it's a Scottish public or the Canadian public, they feel they are protecting their, um, you know, um, sensitivities. The point is that the people I've met, the Scottish people, and, and I'm sure the people can are the same, they are capable of taking their own history. Right. And therefore, because my view was so well known, when the council disbanded the committee and I spoke about Dundas's statue at the Black Lives Matter event in Edinburgh, mm. the leader of the council, the leader, decided to reconvene a committee to look at the black again. Wow. And I was asked to join it. Mm. And within five days, five days, we had a narrative. And it's on Google. Mm. It's stating clearly that Dundas delayed the abolition of the slave trade. He transported, causing what over half a million people to be transported into slavery. And the plaque is dedicated to those who suffered this horrific slavery where a black person had no right to life Mm. and was property for which compensation was paid. And I think that's um, the influence, if you call it that. I just um, was stating the the, the truth about this man and that I feel that why should the public be deceived um, when the man stands 150 feet in the air? Right. Um, when, in fact, he um, was, it was self-centered, his political career, and he paid no 
he paid no interest at all and that in, in, in people's lives. And therefore to have, whether it's a street or a, or, or a monument named after him, that needs careful consideration. Mm. Right. Uh, so, Jeff, thank you so much for explaining that story. Uh, it really does fill things in and give us a sense of what was happening. And, and of course, you bring it right up to date, right up to, as you mentioned, uh, George Floyd's death and how that impacted this decision. It's unfortunate, of course, that it took that to get this uh, yes. m- moving forward. But before we go on any further, I just want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM, and this is Moment of Truth. My guests here on the show are Andrew Lockheed and Sir Jeffrey Palmer, and uh, Sir Jeffrey Palmer is a professor emeritus in the School of Life Sciences at Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh, Scotland, and Andrew Lockheed is the Toronto-based artist who created the petition, hashtag rename Dundas Street, and we are talking about that uh, very thing, the renaming of Dundas Street, and what has moved forward so it's a pleasure to have them both on the show can can i ask how large of a plaque this will end up being when it's uh, when it's permanent do you know i think it should be um in in terms of the present one it's about three feet wide okay and it should be about you know we say three feet square right Yes. Um, and it's easy to, to read. Yes. Um, you know, standing there. So it is going to be a significant change. Yes. And did, did you have anything to do with the actual wording that will be going into that plaque? Well, yeah, some of the, 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 the wording I edited and mm. also the information on it, like mm. this, like over half a million. Mm. And that you know, he, um, and 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 the the significance of gradual, yes, yeah, and 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 the evidence supporting it, right, is is sort of came came from my work, yes. That you know, I, it, it is not easy to change things. Yes, it is not easy to argue a case, mm. especially something like that when you have opposition like the Viker, right. And, 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 and historians. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though it was agreed by the council and the, the um, and, and you know, I checked the history. I've gone back to the original documents. Mm. So when I'm talking about breeding of slaves and, um, you know, talking about hiring slaves to fight, yes. these co- came from documents from the 17... 17- 1700s. And I believe that if you're going to defend, you know, any anybody, you've got to be prepared. And therefore, I'm defending the 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 awful lives that slave had. And therefore, I had to be prepared. Mm -hmm. And I had to do the research. So the narrative is based on a lot of the work I've done. Right. And, you know, but the general public supported me on this and the, the councillors must have done because they voted for it. And therefore, this is a public, the victory of the people. Right. Rather than, you know, uh, this is my victory. Yes. I think it's a, it's a victory of the people. Right. Where people knowing the truth yes. will do the right thing. Right. Andrew, listening to Sir Jeffrey, what comes to mind when you hear that story? 
I mean, it's it's a remarkable story, and it's and it's remarkable for for a number of reasons. Um, not only in that uh, you know Edinburgh has agreed to do something, um, but like when we're talking about the ways in which um, we can change public memorial to um, uh, to better reflect historic truth. I mean, Sir Jeff's work has been supported by a majority of contemporary historians, mm. and uh, and it's. Uh, it's been really amazing to see this, not only just because the plaque acknowledges the truth, but that it fundamentally changes the nature of the memorial as well. Mm. Um, and, you know, it changes it from something that memorializes um, an individual to um, to something uh, that uh, uh, kind of is rededicated to the victims of his actions. Mm. Uh, And it attempts an actionable and answerable form of repair um, by making its subject Dundas and those who derive their power either directly from him or due to his actions, um, either directly accountable or to consider their accountability, their responsibilities or their benefits from the broader um, British Imperial project, mm. and and I think that's really important um, to to see that how it's become not to, uh, gone from being a monument to this kind of counter monument, mm. and so I think it's a really great um, move for uh, for Edinburgh. Uh, so so I think that's that's really great. And, and- Do I think it's necessarily the solution for Toronto? I'm I'm not entirely sure that a plaque suffices, but in this case, where we have a, a kind of singular object that the right. knowledge can be concentrated around, uh, this is this is the right yes. solution here. Yes, I, I think at the very least, uh, hearing the story that uh, Sir Geoffrey has brought forward and and the plaque that is going up permanently in front of Sir Henry's uh, monument in Edinburgh, uh, at least is is something that can tie in with this story that you certainly can bring forward and say. You know, this is this is happening and over there, and it's directly related to Sir Henry's uh, legacy that we are trying to come to terms with here as well. I, I think, <clears throat> I, I you know, I read in the press about um, you know what to, you know um, they you know Andrew is trying to do in in Toronto, and what is interesting is that even though the council had made a decision, you still always get critics. Sure. Um, and the, the 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 point is that um, so p- even post council that because some historians are so they don't believe that the ordinary person, the activist, and I've been called an activist or a or a brewer mm. or a whatever, mm. Mm. in order to remove right. the validity of what you're trying to do. Right. And please don't fall for that. That Andrew's done his work and it is valid, and it should be as his view should be as respected as that of any top scholar or historian, because people have tried to use that to say I'm a scholar and you're not, and therefore you should believe me. 
Gentlemen, we're going to have to leave it there. We're out of time, but it's been a real no pleasure problem. having both of you on the show today. I thank you so much for both of you coming on the show, sharing the story, bringing us up to date on this renaming of Dundas Street and Sir, Sir Jeffrey and the efforts that you are doing over there in Edinburgh. It's been a real pleasure having you both on the show. Thank you very much. And they are Thank the you. voices of Andrew Lockheed, so a nice Toronto-based to artist who created the petition, hashtag renamed Dundas Street. Along Bye. with us today on Bye. the show was Sir Jeffrey Palmer, a professor Bye. at Emeritus in, I, I, rather, was Sir Jeffrey Palmer, a professor emeritus in the School of Life Sciences at Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh, Edinburgh Scotland, and also uh, in Edinburgh, Scotland. And it was a pleasure to have them both on the show. That is our show for today. Thank you for listening to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and we will see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.